You're listening to Queer Writers of Crime featuring LGBTQ authors of mystery, suspense, and thriller novels. Justine, my guest today is Michael Kraft. But mm-hmm. first, I have to say, this is a red-letter day. Okay. You know what makes it a red-letter day, but I don't think most of our listeners do. Hmm. Are you ready to tell them? I am, I am. Our 100th episode. I see we're extra silly for this episode. <laughs> Oh, yes, we are. I had to download some music and they had side effects on the side. And I said, shit, I'm going to take advantage of that. There you go. So here's the deal. This is our 100th episode. That's nearly two years. We've had 100 shows, 92 guests, and 136 book recommendations. How do we end up with only 92 guests and 100 shows? Because some guests came back. Oh, I see. We had a couple specials where we had no guests, and then we had returning guests. Right. So Michael Kraft, he was our first show, and now he's back. Yes, he is. Michael Kraft was episode number one, and he is up for episode number 100. Sounds great. Looking forward to it, Brad. If you enjoy Queer Writers of Crime, let others know with a review. It helps build an audience and introduce more people to queer crime fiction. Apple and iTunes are where most people search for new shows, but if you don't use either, other apps that allow reviews include Podcast Addict, Overcast, and Spotify. Wherever you listen to podcasts, help spread the word to tune in to Queer Writers of Crime. Michael, you're in the desert, but I am nowhere near you. You're in Palm Springs or the Palm Springs area. Right. And I'm 100 miles away in the high desert, mm-hmm. uh, which people probably don't know about. But your area is a beautiful part of the state where I'm located where people drive from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. And I will tell you, it's not nearly as pretty. Yeah. The town is called Apple Valley, and when I look out the window, I can assure you there are no apple trees whatsoever. (laughs) Oh, that's surprising. I just assumed it was like, you know, being in the midst of an orchard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd always been told it was named after a Mr. Apple. So I got curious enough that I looked it up, and actually, I don't know if it was the 30s or 40s, there was an attempt, and they did have apple orchards quite a few Uh apple orchards. And being the desert where that's not very natural, a blight came in and wiped out it all. But the town is still here. Uh (laughs) (laughs) It's it's an interesting town. Uh, There are more Trump flags waving than Uh American flags. Uh So Hubby and I don't hold hands when we go out in public. We kind of hate that we are somewhat in the closet again, but (laughs) we're surviving. You know, along those lines, my husband, Leon, and I uh, recently took a a short uh, sort of staycation over to the San Diego area. We were actually in La Jolla. And the first night at the restaurant, when we were out to eat, you know, it was a really nice place. You know, and I looked around and I said, you know what? 
I think we're the only gay couple in the room. I mean, coming, <laughs> coming from Palm Springs, that is a real eye-opener. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that, about Palm Springs, because it has changed over the years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we will definitely talk about that. Well, I should let people know who I'm talking to. My guest is Michael Kraft, and he is the author of 17 novels, four of which have been honored as finalists for the Lambda Literary Awards. His 2019 mystery, Choir Master, was a gold winner of the IBPA Benjamin Franklin Award. His prize-winning short story has appeared in British as well as American literary journals. Michael holds an MFA in creative writing from Antioch University, Los Angeles, and now lives in Rancho Mirage, California, near Palm Springs. About five miles away. Five miles away. The timing of your recent novel, I love that you've booked into this show by being the guest. You were guest number one, and here you are back as guest number 100. So it couldn't be a better time to have you on the show. So let's talk about you. My favorite topic. (laughs) (laughs) I always say I'm my favorite topic as well, so we might have trouble. (laughs) (laughs) To start off, I remember about a year ago. You and I talked, and you were excited, and you told me you had been selected to write a short story for Palm Springs Noir as Uh an anthology. One thing you mentioned to me is it will be interesting to write a noir piece in Palm Springs, a city that would be probably the least noir-ish, and there I just made up a word, of any city you can choose. Given the beautiful landscape and the sunny climate, the plethora of mid-century architecture, the homes are amazing, the casual lifestyle, the glut of golf courses, etc., 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 how much of a challenge was it to write a short story noir in that environment? Well, I, I thought it would be a challenge for all of the reasons that you've just articulated, but it turns out that once I got into the real brainstorming of the story and then of course, ultimately, the writing of it, it was really pretty easy. The desert setting and all the, you know, the lush beauty that's around here, even though we're in the desert, uh, this area of the desert is very lushly planted, well-tended, manicured, a lot of people like to say. It has almost a fairy tale quality about it. I mean, the tourism uh, in this area became a thing largely because of golf courses and country clubs and you know things of that nature so it's very much associated with a pampered lifestyle and uh, you know leisure so really when you think about it what better backdrop for sinister goings-on and what better setting than one that's so sunny and always bright to have a a dark underside an underbelly as they like to say (laughs) so i mean it was it was just really a lot of fun devising um, a story in the noir genre and coming up with a, a totally new set of characters a totally new set of circumstances not a new setting because I've I've certainly written about Palm Springs before, um, <laughs> having lived here. And they say write what you know. It, it's it's kind of a uh, an, an automatic setting for me to pursue because it doesn't require much research. I just know it. But I had a ball putting the story together, and as it turns out, the the story uh, has been extremely well received. Uh, the book, as you said is an anthology titled Palm Springs Noir. 
It's uh, published by Akashic Books uh, out of New York, and uh, they have made a reputation for themselves, among other things, for publishing a a, a vast series of these city noir anthologies. There's Brooklyn noir, Chicago noir, LA noir, Boston noir, you name it, they've got it. And they usually consist of 14 individual short stories written by 14 different authors who either know the area or live in the area. And they divvy up among the the 14 authors, 14 different locations, either within that city or within, within the environs of it. So no two people you know, write about the exact same location. But uh, so in this case, you know, it, it has to do mostly with Palm Springs, but also the surrounding communities, and then even getting a little bit further out into the desert areas, like where the Salton Sea is and Joshua Tree and in the higher desert regions. One of the stories is set near Idlewild, so that's nothing like the desert. Um, I'm proud to be one of 14, Uh, and the roster of authors includes some very big names, such as Janet Fitch and Todd Goldberg, and it was great company to keep. Um, Critically, the collection has been very well received, and I even got a nice shout-out in the Los Angeles Times, of all places, that that called my story, which is titled VIP Check-In, Delightful, that was one word used to describe it, and campy was another. Uh, They called it by far the the campiest story in the collection, and I took that as a pat on the back. The fact that the story was described as campy should give you a very firm clue that there's a certain gay element to it, and I had fun with it. So uh, that, you know, it really couldn't have turned out better. Now, we've talked privately about this, but I mean, it's been my intention all along that if the story took off the way I thought it might, that I I might expand that story and use it as the basis for a full-blown novel. I'm doing that. The working title of the novel is VIP Check-In, as is the short story, but that's certainly subject to change, and I think Mm -hmm. it may be. Uh, The story is written. It's out there making the rounds, and uh, there are some promising developments, but unfortunately, I can't really say anything definite at this point. But there is a very good chance that this novel, which is intended to be the first in a series, will be published. Uh, And not only published, but published within maybe in the winter, early spring, something like that. There's just not much more I can say about it right now, except that I'm very excited. I will look forward to it. I want to tell you, I haven't read all of the book. I skipped around. I started with yours, of course. Of course. And and then I skipped around to just kind of get a flavor because I knew I wouldn't have time to read the whole thing. And so far, without a doubt, yours is my favorite. And as I continue, I expect that to continue. (laughs) So it shows that you had a lot of fun with it. I will tell you that. Thank you. I humbly thank you. You said the name, and I hope I get it right. It's Akashic Pub. Oh, I, I've been struggling to find the absolute correct pronunciation of it. It's it's spelled A K A S H I C. It's a I, I think it's an Indian Hindu word, and some people say Akashic, and some people say uh, I don't know. I've been saying Akashic, but I'm I'm not certain of the exact pronunciation. But Akashic's good enough. Or Akashic. 
Yeah, folks heard the spelling, and you can see it when you purchase the novel. And you can call it whatever you want to. I think Michael could care less as long as you bought the book. <laughs> Just buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in, and I think anthologies really are. I've always, as a reader, I approach anthologies like a box of fine chocolates. Uh, you know, you don't have to sit down and you know set aside a weekend to read the book the way you would with a novel because you know the chapters are consecutive and you know it it, it just makes sense to consider it as a whole. Rather, the, you know, they're they're individual pieces that you can just sort of consume at your leisure. And then put it down for a while if you want, and come back when you're ready. Uh, and the, there's another one waiting for you. So I, I like anthologies. And you know, I have never read that many anthologies, and I I've never written a, a short story that I wrote that I would consider publishing. Basically, wrote them for myself, uh, and it's a struggle for me. Yeah. To, short stories are hard. They really are. You you have to tell a story in a very short amount of space. But what I did enjoy is exactly what you said, is each story is different. Probably some I wasn't all that hot on, and some I absolutely loved. And amongst those that I loved, they were some of them were dramatically different. Mm -hmm. uh, Because I was reading, they were mystery anthologies. I think they were all published by uh, the Mystery Writers of America. Uh And it, it, it was a great pleasure. I've read a couple of them now. So... I look forward to reading more of this one. And, and I got to say, I want to read more of Akashic because you mentioned how it's interesting. They've gone to these different cities. You said Chicago, and then they've also done San Francisco and New York. But then they did many cities and towns you'd never expect. They did Santa Fe, New Mexico, yeah. and Columbus, Ohio. And here's a place for a noir novel. They did one in the state of Montana. And Mississippi. And, and then they went outside the U.S. They've done Tel Aviv, Haiti, Baghdad. It, it's just, I was almost laughing when I looked at the list because they weren't places I would have ever expected. And I don't know if you know how many books they, they put out. Over 100. In, 110. In the, in the, yeah, in the Noir series, yes. Yes. So I would say start with Palm Springs Noir and hit some of the others because this book is very good. And I would presume the others are as well. And, you know, just from a, a writer's standpoint, and I know that you have a, a lot of writers, uh, you know, who listen to your podcast, it's, it's an interesting setup the way they do it. They offer exactly the same contract to all of the contributing writers. Um, I, I don't think this is any trade secret. You know, the, the going rate is $200 for a short story to be, you know, that will be part of the anthology. And, and you're, you're just giving them, you know, first publication rights. You, you own it after that. And, you know, each book will generally have one or two big headline authors. And then, you know, and and the rest are simply lesser known, but even the headline authors, uh, you know, get the same $200. So it's a, it's a very democratic process, small D democratic. (laughs) Well, what I've noticed is if you have a book where none of the author's names jump out at you as being familiar, the prologue is written by someone famous. I mm-hmm. I know one of the books that I wrote, I hadn't heard of anybody, but Sue Grafton herself did the introduction. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, that I, her name was big on the front of the book. So, of course, they were very smart in their marketing as of well. Yeah. <laughs> How did you become involved with the anthology? I was uh, approached out of the blue one morning uh, through an email from Barbara DeMarco Barrett, who is the editor of the anthology, 
in the sense that she drummed up the the enthusiasm for it, sold it, sold the idea to the publisher to do a noir anthology based in Palm Springs, and was responsible for recruiting all of the writers who would be a part of it. And I, I was really surprised, you know, that she found me. Uh, it turns out that uh, I was recommended to her by Todd Goldberg, who runs the. Uh, uh, let me make sure that I get this right. He is the director of the MFA program in creative writing and screenwriting at UC Riverside, but it's a, a low residency program that is based right here in the Palm Springs area. And I've, I've just I've come to know him and get acquainted through that MFA program, Master of Fine Arts. And uh, I've, I've done a lecture or two at those residencies. And he was kind enough to recommend me as someone to check out for this. So I, I owe that to him. And, and I have a lot of, uh, a lot of gratitude for the, <laughs> for the <laughs> fact that he gave me the nod. Well, with 14 authors, I would say you've definitely been honored by being in there. And it was no mistake for them to choose you. Oh, thank you. And, and let's get into the book. It's VIP check-in, as you said. Yeah. And the protagonist is Dante. I think his real name is Danny. Yes. His, okay. his given name is Danny, but he goes by Dante. And that's kind of covered in the story as to how that came about. Yeah. Dante and, O'Donnell, which is an, a, a very odd combination of, <laughs> of names. <laughs> well, I liked Dante. He's a good guy, but trouble seems to follow him. Yeah. And I and know it's a short... We should mention mm -hmm. he's gay. He's the, okay. He's the viewpoint character. Yeah. And we should mention not all the stories in, in the book are gay. Correct. But uh, yours certainly is. And I know you can't say a whole lot about a short story, but tell us as much as you can. <sighs> Ooh. You mean like a plot? Uh <laughs> Yeah, Just the I, beginning, I guess. How do we get it rolling? Okay. Uh, Dante's kind of down on his luck. He's just turned uh, 50 or 60, something like that. And his ex-husband has divorced him, and he kind of finds he's, he's on his own. He's trying to get his life back together. Um, first, he takes a bartending gig. That's where he got the name Dante, because when he applied for the job, they told him, we already have a Danny. And so the manager rummaged through a drawer and found an old name tag from someone who used to work there. <laughs> work there named Dante. So Danny became Dante for purposes of working in the bar. But that job didn't last long. But the name stuck. And then he landed a job for a vacation rental company. Um, vacation rentals are a big deal around here. That's, that's a real industry. I mean, Palm Springs is a tourist town. And uh, his position is that of a, uh, what do we, well, Loosely, I would describe him as a concierge, but he's, he's, he's one of those people who goes to check out the property to make sure everything's in order before guests arrive. And then after they leave, he, he goes and checks it again to make, everything, make sure everything's still in order. But for real high-end clients renting high-end properties, he's kind of on call, just as a concierge might be. And uh, the, the premise of the story is that, uh, yes, he's working for a vacation rental company, and the guests do indeed seem to have baggage. And one thing leads to another, and there's a murder. There is an important, there, there's another principal character 
uh, the, sort of the secondary character in the book. It's a black female ex-cop named Jazz Friendly. It's, a, again, another unlikely name because she's not very friendly. And when he first encounters her, he notices her name badge, which says, officer friendly and you know <laughs> anything but you know um, i like, laughed out loud literally laughed out loud when he read that yeah and i mean the, oh i should say you know there's a great deal of humor in the story and uh, also in the novel that was based on the story and uh, so it's it's dante and jazz they're the the two central characters although it's mainly dante's story and he's the first person narrator they uh well, I don't. I, I don't want to say yet what happens beyond the short story, uh, because the the short story turns out being just the jumping off point for the larger novel. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, they they don't mix. They're like oil and water, but they're but they end up being forced by circumstances to work together to solve another crime, <laughs> and I think there'll be more. <laughs> Well, you gave it away. One of the questions I was going to ask, and I didn't know if you were going to be willing to give it up, is Dante and Officer Friendly, are they going to be the ones in the novel? Oh, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know if it was just going to stick in Palm Springs, but I'm glad to see that they're going to be coming back. And it's funny that you mentioned the vacation rental thing, because to give people an idea, Leonardo DiCaprio's house, I've seen the inside, not personally, but I, I've seen pictures of the inside of that house. And it is incredible. And in my last novel, I had a character that lived in Palm Springs. And I described Leo's house to a T because I wanted that to be where she lived. But what really surprised me, and I never would have expected it, is Leo rents that house out to vacationers. Now, why? He certainly doesn't need the money. Isn't that strange? It is very strange. I mean, I know a a lot of people, because vacation rentals have become such an industry, at least here locally they are. A lot of those houses just are investment properties that, uh, you know, people kind of run as mini hotels. But, uh, you know, the the more lavish properties are, are generally owned by someone who lives there. But many of the more lavish properties are estates and such owned by wealthy people who actually live there, or at least live there part-time. And there are a lot of part-time residents here in, in, in the desert. So then, you know, when they're not here, they turn around and rent it out. You know, and uh, granted, that can be very lucrative, but that means you've got people, <laughs> people coming into your house and treating it like it's theirs for a while. And then they leave and other people come in. I couldn't, I could not wrap my head, my head around that. Um, I, I just, I, I wouldn't want to sleep there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, people do it. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting city. And continue with that. Palm Springs has really changed. I remember back in the later 80s and early 90s, Sonny Bono was the mayor. And many people may be surprised to know that Sonny Bono was a conservative Republican. Yet today, Palm Springs, it's much different. It is the first city in the country to have an all-LGBTQ city council. Correct. What do you think has caused that change? I don't know. Well, yes, I, I do have a theory. 
I mean, you're right. Uh, this whole area used to be quite conservative. And for instance, when <clears throat> my husband, then partner, and I first started visiting here, I think this goes back at least 30 years, probably longer, there were no gay bars in Palm Springs. They were all in nearby Cathedral City, which is a more working class uh, community. Mm -hmm. um, but now, my gosh, I mean, you know, Palm Springs proper is gay mecca, not only for the valley, but I mean, it's, it's considered one of the gayest places in the United States. I mean, some estimates have pegged uh, that 60% of the population here may be gay, which is amazing and sort of wonderful. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Palm Springs itself has gone through a renaissance in terms of its desirability as a tourist de destination over the last generation as well. I mean, it had like this golden age of, you know, Hollywood celebrities being here, you know, but then it, it, it kind of went into a period of decline. The downtown declined, the value of housing declined and all that, but that's way turned around. And I think... I think a possible explanation for that, and one that I've heard many times, is that back in the you know initial age of the AIDS crisis, a lot of people in San Francisco, which had been hit hard by AIDS early on, found that uh, their property values had escalated so much in San Francisco that uh, it made a lot of sense to sell out there and come here to the desert, which is a very healthy kind of place to live, where also property values had been greatly depressed. And so there was sort of this incoming mass of gentrification. You know, a lot of gay men moved here, sort of like all at once, and that gentrification took over. And I mean it in a good way, you know, moved in and dolled things up. You know, <laughs> and, and you know, and Palm Springs just took on a whole new shine. It's not because I'm gay that I'm saying that, and I'm trying to make this up as like a pat on the back to gay people. Um, you know, but I mean, that's that really is what happened, and I think Palm Springs is what it is today, which you know, a very hot tourist spot, largely because of the the gay populace. Um, like you said, look at the city council. That's just amazing. As of the last election, I'm not sure that it's entirely LGBTQ, but if it's not, it's very close. But there, there, was, there was a period when the council was entirely gay, gay, lesbian. You know. Well, this whole thing with gays moving into a not ideal neighborhood and changing it. The Castro is a good example of that. I can't remember the original name of the Castro, but it wasn't the worst places in San Francisco to live, but it, it certainly wasn't the best. Right. And us gays moved in and changed that. Um, the homes are gorgeous. <laughs> and the course, Castro is course, really darling, nice. Fabulous. <laughs> yes. But because of that, the Castro is crazy. And actually all of San Francisco, it's crazy to try and live there because the cost of living is unbelievable. Right. And, and I love, I personally love San Francisco, but over time, in addition to the cost of living, many friends of mine who are in Palm Springs said that city became dirtier and the homeless population went up 
and mainly because of the real estate, they seem to be leaving the Castro in droves and probably the rest of San Francisco as well. And I think that's also been a large part of it. I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in Illinois and spent most of my adult life in Wisconsin. And my partner, now husband, and I started vacationing out here. I I can't pinpoint the date. it, It was at least 30 years ago. And at some point we realized, well, that's going to be our retirement destination. And uh, that's what happened. We're Midwesterners. Well, I knew you were from the Midwest. I imagine Palm Springs is quite a, was quite a change from Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, at, in, at many levels, yes. I mean, they, they could not be more different. I mean, you know, just the setting, the mountains, the weather, the desert, the gay vibe and all that. You, you don't have that in Wisconsin. But one of the things that made this area such an easy destination for me to like was that it kind of, at another level, reminds me of like the town I grew up in, Elgin, Illinois, at the time, it, it, it was, you know, a population of 50,000. So a small city, mm-hmm. big town, you know, not urban. Uh, and then uh, I lived in Kenosha, Wisconsin for 27 years. I mean, the population there is, I think, a little over 100,000 now. But when, when I first lived there, it was nowhere near that. It reminded me of the, the town I grew up in. And then to come out here, I, I think... Um, Palm Springs itself is about 50,000, and and that's one of the bigger cities here in the valley. The largest city is Indio, but that's that's some distance from Palm Springs. It kind of reminded me of, for lack of a better word, a suburban existence um, that is, is very comfortable to me and to a lot of people. I mean, you have your car. It's easy to get around. You know, parking's never a problem running errands, the grocery store, the cleaners, whatever. It's simply no problem. It's a very easy lifestyle here. And so in that sense, it does remind me of the Midwest, which is a little odd. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected that connection, but I think I see what you're talking about. That makes kind of sense. <laughs> now, you mentioned VIP check-in. You're working on that, and that's going to be coming out. Uh-huh. I would venture to guess, in my opinion, you're most known for your Mike Manning series, which you had seven Mark books. Manning. Mark oh, Mark Manning. Manning. I apologize. A lot of people just, do that. Yeah. I, I'm getting I'm everything wrong. <laughs> 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 okay, the Mark Manning series, it's seven books. Uh-huh. And then you most recently did the Mr. Puss series, of which there are three novels. The last one, I think, was – it was the end of last year, I think, in November. Right. And Mike Manning ended in 2005, I Mark, believe. Mark, Mark Manning. Oh, my gosh. Everybody does that. So, <laughs> okay. okay, folks, if you're looking for this great series by Michael Kraft, it is Mark Manning. Mark, yes. Mark, Mark. There are seven installments, and those books go back about 20 years, although they came out over a seven-year period. And I am most known for those. Uh, at, at the time, there were no ebooks, but those have since come out. All seven uh, of the Mark Mannings are available as ebooks. And then just this past year or so, a narrator on the East Coast approached me about issuing audiobooks of the series, and we have been uh, steadfastly at work with that. And uh, the, the first four installments of the series are now available as audiobooks. And just 
this weekend, uh, we've begun work on Mark Manning number five, which is Boy Toy. And it um, just as a bit of background, I mean, Boy Toy was a huge hit that was easily at the time, my, my biggest seller to date. It got a lot of attention. It sold a lot of books. And because of that, it really brought the whole series along with it. I mean, in any good series, a reader can jump in at any time. You know, when a new book mm-hmm. comes out, you don't expect everyone to, to go out and buy the five previous books. You know? um, so the stories all have to be constructed so that a new reader can join at any time. But the, the thing is, you know, when, when you have a runaway success five books down the line, then obviously a lot of people are going to go back and check out what came before. So uh, I'm, I'm just delighted that we're now working on the audiobook of Boy Toy because, I mean, that, that story meant a lot to me. And I, I think a lot of people, you know, will now have the opportunity to experience, to experience it a different way. Well, I love what you said. Anybody that listens to this show knows there's nothing that drives me crazy. Well, there are probably other things, but one thing that really drives me crazy is a series of books where some of them end with some type of cliffhanger. Uh-huh. I feel cheated, and it it makes me mad. So my series, I certainly am, trying, am writing that way, and I'm glad to see that you do. And I'm glad most series are that way because whenever I hear one that does a cliffhanger, I don't even touch the book. Right. I mean, then the uh... – the individual books in a scenario that you're describing, Brad, then the individual books become more like episodes or big chapters in themselves where you have to come back for more. And that's not fair. Each installment really needs to stand on its own as a complete story, a complete resolved story. And you know, resolution doesn't necessarily mean a happy ending. It could even be an ambiguous ending. But um, you have to sense that the central problem has been addressed, (laughs) the crisis, you know. I agree. And I will say some authors go a little bit far when it comes to the making each book a standalone. And I don't know if you've read anything by Janet Ivanovich. She's Mm -hmm. very popular. Of course. And I had to stop reading her series because... Not only was every book standalone, every book is identical to the last book. Really? Well, she doesn't age. She has the same two boyfriends that she, you know, they have this love triangle. And it it wasn't my cup of tea. I mean, Uh, obviously, she doesn't care because she's making plenty of money selling her books. But She's doing something right. (laughs) And generally, I don't like to talk. I I certainly would never leave reviews, rarely leave reviews bad for other authors, right. and I don't name them on this show. But occasionally, if it's a big author like Janet, where I don't think they care what I think, I will <laughs> state my opinion. <laughs> now, okay, so Mark Manning was quite a while ago, and so was your Claire Gray series. Uh-huh. And anybody that knows you from recently may know you from the Mr. Puss series, of which there are three books. Will we see any of those three coming soon, or other than the, the book that you mentioned, what's next for Michael Kraft? Is there a new series that's going to come other than the one in oh, Palm Springs? Oh, no, I, I, I can only you know, wrap my head around uh, one series at a time. And, you know, it. so the, the, 
the series that is based upon the short story VIP Check-In. As, as I've said, I've, I've, uh, I've developed that short story into a full-length novel. It is written. Um, I'm now at a point where I can say with confidence that that in itself will be the basis of a series. So there's a lot of work ahead of me uh, to produce that series, the, the Dante and Jazz series. I mean, that's how it will be referred to. Um, and I have you know, nothing else on the horizon right now other than to make that the, the, the best series of books that I can possibly make it be. What a great way to put it, and I certainly am looking forward to that well, series. It's actually kind of already begun for me, but I'm ready for the full novel series. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I mean, be, because of the reception of the short story, and it's having proved to be as popular as it has, I mean, that's going to be a real nice way to, uh, to, to, to get the series launched. It'll really help move you know, move that initial installment. In fact, the short story, ser- I mean, it, it's, it's much altered, but the short story essentially serves as chapter one of, of the book. Very nice. Now, your earliest books went the traditional route, and really the time that those came out, it was very rare to hear of an independent publisher. Right. And, and then later on, you started independently publishing your novels. I know the Mr. Puss series mm-hmm. was, and you did a standalone what led to that switch, and were there any unexpected challenges in self-publishing? Well, I, it was—I mean, the the switch happened just because of the the changing marketplace. There was a golden age of gay mystery writing in the '80s and '90s, leading up into the early 2000s, and publishers were clamoring to add gay titles and specifically gay mystery titles to their lists, and that you know. I I lucked into starting my career, a writing career, when when that was really in full swing. But then things changed. And I mean, like, for instance, Michael Nava has written essays about this extensively, about the history of gay publishing and gay mystery publishing in general, Mm -hmm. and how things changed. And uh, it, frankly, it just became very difficult to, uh, to, to sell that kind of material to big mainstream authors anymore. There are exceptions, of, of course, you know, but as a trend, that's what happened. And so any number of gay mystery authors, and I would say gay authors in general, you know, switched to self-publishing because it had become a, a viable medium in a way that it had not been before. I mean, years before that, you know, that was called vanity publishing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just had a terrible, terrible stigma. And it was an expensive, egotistical route to just, you know, filling your garage with a bunch of printed books that you couldn't possibly move on your own. You know, how do you sell books? You know, but then Amazon happened and Kindle happened and publishing on demand happened. And, you know, publishing on demand means that there's virtually no upfront expense to make a, a, a printed book available to people because when they order it, you know, electronically through Amazon or whatever, that just punches a button somewhere that spits out a physical copy of the book, you know, and they are, the the technology is so good. A print on demand title is 
virtually indistinguishable from a book turned out by a big five publisher that had an initial print run of 100,000 copies. The, the difference, of course, is what's in it. You know, garbage in, garbage out. Mm-hmm. But I mean, but if it is well written, if it's well edited, if it's well designed, having been printed on demand will not be a detriment to it or to how it is perceived by readers. You know, readers really will not be able to tell the difference um, between a print on demand book, which most self publishers use, uh, mm-hmm. in addition to Kindle. I mean, the, that's another thing that changed. The, the technology, the system suddenly became available for talented writers as well as untalented writers who wanted to get their stuff out there and found that they simply couldn't, could no longer move it through the traditional channels. And to a certain extent, that's still the case today. I mean, the face of publishing has changed. Um, and I presume that it will continue to do so. I would say there's still a stigma to or stigma to many people regarding self-publishing and I I say quite frequently one of the beauties of Amazon is that anybody can publish a novel and one of the horrible things about Amazon <laughs> is anybody can publish a novel. Of course. Yeah. And I am not fond of Amazon as a company and I could go on for hours but we won't go there but I am grateful for them financially. Mm-hmm. And I certainly don't think I would be making nearly as much as I would through a traditional publisher. I'm I'm not moving to the Hamptons anytime soon. Let me get that straight <laughs> to anybody yeah. that d- doesn't know how, about publishing. But it ain't bad. So I'm quite happy quite happy with that. And, and certainly they changed everything. Yes. Uh, some some to the better, some to the worst. Yeah, and you know you can gripe about it and analyze it all you want, but that is it is the reality. Uh, yes. and, it, and it is different from what it used to be. And it, 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 has, it has given, as I said, both talented authors and untalented authors the opportunity to at least get it out there. You know, it's not, it's not a matter of a manuscript just stuck in a drawer that has no possibility of ever seeing the light of day. I mean, if you, you, know, you, you can do it if you want to. And once it's out there, it's up to... It's up to readers and the audience, of course, to, to judge whether it's any good or not. And if it's simply no good, you know, they're probably, you probably won't be following it up with, with many more. But like I said, a lot of established authors have found this to be a very viable way forward in a, a, a changing publishing environment. This message is to many of the people out there. Uh, say what you will about Amazon. You can hate what they've done to the industry. But you know what? They ain't going to go away, so quit bitching. Well, it was 100 episodes ago that I had you on, but I don't know if you remember awkward questions authors get. Oh, I do kind of recall there was something like that. Yes. <laughs> you have something in mind? <laughs> yes. What I do is I spin the wheel, uh-huh. and I may have included you on this. I'm almost certain I did. I don't know if you responded. I surveyed dozens of authors, and I said, what are questions that have been strange that you've gotten or just really awkward to answer? And so I have a slew of those, and uh-huh. I spin the wheel, and we see what you get. Okay. So hold on. 
Okay, Mike, I like this one. And for this question, I'm just going to go ahead and pick Mark Manning. If one of those novels was made into a movie, who would you want to star as Mark Manning? Oh, I'm terrible with actors' names. Um, oh. oh, I'm so bad at that. I'm sorry. Can you pick another question? <laughs> I I used to have bright ideas about, you know, who would play Mark Manning. But I mean, honestly, it's been so long since I was writing those books. I don't even remember what I thought at the time. I, I, I think at the time I was saying, you know, that like a youngish Harrison Ford, because I mean, th- that puts it into about... The, the era when those books were being written. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll stick with that. Yeah. He, <laughs> he, he would have been great, but he, you know, he's a little long in the tooth now, like some <laughs> of the rest of us, you know, a little long in the tooth to be playing, you know, the heroic Mark Manning. <laughs> yeah. But he had his day and they are still like, unfortunately, most movies have him when he has a love interest. She's usually in her twenties or thirties, but <laughs> That's one of the horrible things about Hollywood. (laughs) But I think Harrison Ford was a good choice. Good. I'm glad you like that. Michael, it's been great to have you on. Again, Michael Kraft's short story is in Palm Springs Noir. It's an, an anthology, and I highly recommend it. It's a good book. And the name of the your short story is VIP Check In. You'll love it. Read it. <laughs> Not you, Brad. I know you've read it. But, well, I haven't read to the whole anyone book, listening. Please, <laughs> please, you know, go, go get it. Read VIP check in. <laughs> Thank you again, Michael. Okay. And let's hey. wrap it up. Thank you so much, Brad. It was a pleasure. <laughs>